Well, this morning we're looking at um, the story that's traditionally called the story of the triumphal entry. Raise your hand if you grew up in um, a more traditional liturgical church where on Palm Sunday they would like process in with palm branches. Did anybody experience that? I did. Yeah. Um, Well, this morning we're reading that story, but we're a little bit early because Palm Sunday isn't actually until next week. Um, So we're early, which is uncharacteristic of Christ City, but yeah, I see y'all coming in at at 1020. I'm just kidding, sort of. Um, Well, I like being early, so we're going to go ahead and, and unpack this story this week. The reason we're doing this is because uh, this sermon series where we're looking at the humanity of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. But at the same time, in a way that we can't fully wrap our minds around, he's also fully human. And in our sermon series, we're actually tracking the last uh, few days and weeks of his life uh, in chronological order, actually. So last week, we looked at the story of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, and then the triumphal entry story that we're reading this morning takes place soon after that. And then next week, we'll look at the story of uh, the betrayal of Jesus. Um, You will actually hear a sermon about Judas, which I don't know how often that happens, but uh, Jesus is very human in that he was betrayed by his friends and followers. So the triumphal entry story traditionally begins uh, what the church has referred to, has called Holy Week. Now, don't be confused because Holy Week actually starts, like I said, next Sunday. Uh, And let me just share with you some ways that we're um, creating space for you to press into Holy Week. This is is a very sacred season as we journey with Jesus on his last few days to the cross. So next Sunday, like I mentioned, is Palm Sunday. It's the start of Holy Week. And we're having this thing called Evensong. It's a uh, liturgical prayer and worship service. And it's going to be a really simple stripped down space for you to come and just cry out and worship God, just like we see the crowds in this passage doing with Jesus, uh, praising and proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, praise be to our king. Um, So I'm I'm very excited about that. It'll be a really simple space for you to, to pray together and to pray for one another and our city and to worship Jesus. So I encourage you to come to that. It's next Sunday night at 7 p.m. at Central Christian Church over at McLean and Peabody. So then on Thursday night of Holy Week, uh, traditionally Thursday is called in the liturgical church Maundy Thursday, when we remember and we reflect on Jesus sharing with his disciples the Last Supper, uh, the Passover meal. And Jesus moving after the Passover meal into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, where he wept tears of blood, crying out in despair to his father, and then where he was betrayed uh, by Judas and handed over to arrest. And we're going to lean into that story in a really uh, experiential way uh, on Monday, Thursday at 8 p.m., a special service at Playhouse on the Square. Um, That'll be really special and really unique. Uh, That's probably the thing during Holy Week that I'm I'm most looking forward to. Um, So I I invite you to join us at that as well. Um, It's a little late, and so unfortunately we won't be able to offer childcare. But if you have kids, it might be worth getting them down a little bit early, grabbing a babysitter, and coming and uh, experiencing that with us. 
And then finally, you're probably familiar with Good Friday, on the Friday of Holy Week when our Lord and Savior Jesus was crucified and died on the cross for us. And so we're going to gather again at Central Christian Church. We're actually partnering with Living Hope Church in Midtown uh, to host a Good Friday service together. So that'll be really, uh, really sweet and really sacred. Um, it's earlier and we will offer childcare. Praise God. Uh, at, at 6 p.m. So my wife and I can both be there. Uh, 6 p.m. on uh, Friday, Good Friday. Invite you to worship with us. And then finally, uh, as we lean into lament that week and discomfort, we're waiting for this longing is welling up in us for Easter, uh, for the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus, which comes, spoiler alert, on Sunday morning. And we're going to gather uh, at the auditorium at Playhouse on the Square. Uh, it's a really beautiful space. We were there for our birthday service back in September. Um, so it's a really fun, large, beautiful space in the middle of the city where we can gather and worship and celebrate uh, Christ being raised from the dead. So that's Holy Week starting next Sunday. Very excited. And I encourage you, like if any time in the year that you press in, to the story of Jesus, I encourage you to do that next week. Um, Christians around the world uh, will be leaning into Jesus and his story that week, so, so please join us for those services. So this morning, we're going to zoom in on verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, but first, let's get a snapshot of the entire story so that we see what's going on. Like I said, last week, Robin preached on Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, and Robin said, if you remember, uh, that, it, that it cost Jesus something. Ultimately, it cost Jesus his life. Giving life to his friend cost Jesus his own life because it made the authorities around him very afraid. Who is this man? People are beginning to praise and worship and adore him. Who is this man who has power to raise the dead to life? And so it ultimately started the journey for Jesus towards the cross. Soon after that event, the triumphal entry story happens. Jesus and his disciples are traveling towards Jerusalem. And when they're pretty close, it's just a little bit odd. Like they're just a few miles away. Jesus stops. Maybe they've stopped to rest for a minute. And he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the nearest village and you're going to find a colt there. His disciples are probably, what in the world is, what is we're going to go and we're going to find a colt there. And if the owner of the colt says to you, what are you doing taking my colt, right? Like these men are just out there taking his colt. You can tell them the Lord has need of it. And the owner will just say, okay, blessings, go for it. It's really odd, really strange. Like they had come all this way and they're almost to Jerusalem, you got his disciples are, why can we just not walk together the last few miles, Jesus? Why do you want us to go and do this awkward and strange thing? But that's the way Jesus rolls, as we've seen. Uh, so they do it. And they bring back the colt, and they set their cloaks on it, and they set Jesus on it. Now, this does, like, if you, if you take a step back, it, it does seem really odd to us, right? Or is it just me? It could just be me, that's fine. Um, it, it, it's really odd what's happening here. But I think as the story began to unfold for the disciples and all the people witnessing this, the Pharisees, the multitude, the crowd, 
I don't think they would have missed the significance of it. Let me read to you a verse from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here comes your king, the one you've been waiting for, and he has salvation in his hands. We see that this isn't missed by the people because look at how they respond as they see and it begins to hit them and strike them to their core. They see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt. Look at what they do. They, they spread their cloaks out because they recognize this is royalty and they proclaim together. They quote from Psalm 118, blessed is the king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The significance of what's happening it may pass us by, but it doesn't pass these people by. They recognize this is the royal messianic figure that we've been waiting for, that we've been longing for, that we've been hoping for. He's here, and he's riding into Jerusalem before us. You see, too, that the significance of it doesn't, doesn't pass by the Pharisees either, the religious authorities, the religious elite of the day. Look at how they respond. Teacher, they cry out to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, correct them. We've got to fix, we've got to mend this situation. You can sense that they're, they're filled with fear. Think about it. Think about the attention that this sort of event would have attracted from Rome. It's not the sort of attention that the Pharisees wanted coming their way. This would have been spreading around the Roman Empire like wildfire. There's a king in Jerusalem. The people are praising him. He is raising the dead to life. This isn't the sort of attention that the Pharisees would have wanted from Rome. So they cry out to Jesus, teacher, rebuke these people. We've got to calm them down. We've got to correct this situation. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem to fanfare because he's royalty, because he's the king so now let's zoom in on verse 41, and with that background in mind, you're going to see that this also is pretty odd. Something pretty odd happens here. In verse 41, Luke tells us that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. When Jesus drew near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. Now, here's why this is odd. Because Luke has already told us that Jesus is not just, it, this isn't just a normal person, like riding into Jerusalem, seeing the city, being filled with emotion, and weeping over it. But this is, this is an important figure, a royal figure even. And for us, it's uncomfortable, because royal figures publicly, like in front of the masses, are supposed to keep their composure, right? Maybe you can shed a tear or two for dramatic effect, but not the sort of weeping that Jesus is doing here. In fact, I googled um, presidents weeping, and uh, I'll tell you, it doesn't happen. Um, there are a handful of instances throughout uh, American history where presidents do shed some tears, and of course, it's always captured on film for us and on um, photo, uh, but it's a very 
sort of composed, uh, put together, like gently shedding of a tear. Not the sort of weeping that we see from King Jesus here in Luke. So we've got to admit that deep down, like this has to make us a little uncomfortable. Jesus publicly, seemingly losing control of his emotion in front of all these people. The king that they're worshiping and celebrating, weeping, losing his composure in front of them. But, of course, while this may seem strange to us, it may not have seemed so strange to those witnessing this event. Here's why. Because, uh, in case you missed it, we're 21st century, post-enlightenment, the very important thing that happened in the 17th and 18th century in the Western world, we're 21st century post-enlightenment Westerners. You with me? And as 21st century post-enlightenment enlightened Westerners, we're uncomfortable with such a public expression of grief. We're uncomfortable with such a public expression of lament. But for Jesus and for very pre-enlightenment, ancient Near Eastern first century Jewish people, they would not, like we are, be so uncomfortable with such a public display of lament. In fact, let me show you, let me contrast for you our cultural norms and their cultural norms. Here's one way we can contrast. There's a Bible scholar named Gordon Fee, and he said this, show me a church's music and I'll show you their theology. If you wanna see what's behind a church, if you wanna see the, the foundation on which they stand, show me their music and I'll show you their theology. So if, if you look at um, the top 100 modern worship songs of our day, and there is a chart for that, in case you're curious, you can look it up later, CCLI. Um, if you look up the top 100 modern worship songs that are most popular being sung around the Western world in churches this morning, how many of them would you guess would be considered a lament, a public declaration of grief? Zero, zero. But contrast this with, with this. The songbook for the early church, the early Christians, and the Jews of Jesus' day, the songbook that they used in their worship gatherings was the Psalter, the book of Psalms. And more than 70%, more than 100 of the 150 Psalms are considered lament. Zero of our top 100 modern day worship songs that we sing in churches are laments. Over 100 of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms are considered lament. Let me read to you this quote. I put it in your bulletin. So powerful and so true by Dan Allender. Read, read it. Read it with me. Dr. Allender gets at what we're talking about, that we miss out on lament, something that Jesus and his contemporaries would have, would have really leaned into. Christians Dan Allender says, Christians seldom sing in the minor key. We fear the somber. We seem to hold sorrow in low esteem. We seem predisposed to fear lament as a quick slide into doubt and despair. 
failing to see that doubt and despair are the dark soil that is necessary to grow confidence and joy. Let me say that again. Doubt and despair are the dark soil that is necessary to grow confidence and joy. Listen to this. Lament cuts through insincerity. It strips pretense, and it reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder. Christians today seldom sing in the minor key. Let me show you another way that we can contrast and we can see like maybe we don't get this quite as much as Jesus and his contemporaries did. So in Luke chapter 41, we've been doing this a lot the last few weeks uh, and I find it helpful. I like it. If you don't, I'm sorry. Um, let me show you the Greek word uh, behind this one word in Luke chapter 1941. Um, the Greek word behind the word that's translated as he wept over it, wept, the Greek word there is klio, klio, which means this. This is how we would define it. To weep or wail with emphasis upon the noise accompanying the weeping or the wailing. It's sort of like loud grief. It's not a quiet, composed, gentle crying. It's a, it's a loud crying, a loud expression of grief. Uh, weeping with an, an emphasis on the noise accompanying the weeping. Let's look back at the passage we looked at last week in John chapter 11. Let me read for you three verses, John 11, 33 through 35. It'll be on the screen, so you can just follow along and try to stick with me. John 11, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Pause. The Greek word in both those instances, Mary's weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, the Greek word there, no surprise, is klio. Same word in Luke chapter 19. Are you with me? Okay. Are you? Okay. There's no response there. So, uh, And then look in, in, verse, in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, where have you laid him? They said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, the Greek word behind wept in verse 35, you would think it would be klio, but it's not. It's a different Greek word. It's dakruo, dakruo, and it means to weep. This is how modern American scholars define this, to weep with the clear implication of shedding tears. To weep with the clear implication of shedding tears. It's, it's more of, rather than a loud grief, it's more of a quiet and tender crying. Now, here's the reason that I bring all of that up. Because I want to show you that Jesus and his contemporaries and the Jewish people who had come before him were so in touch, they were so in tune with this emotion called sadness, this longing in our heart, this lamenting, this grieving, they were so in touch with that that they actually had multiple words to describe different types of crying. If you think about it for a moment, it just seems crazy to us. Multiple words to express different types of crying, different volume levels in which one might be crying. So what we see is that Jesus experiences the whole range of what it means to be human in ways that maybe, not maybe, in ways that I think we are definitely missing out on. 
Jesus experiences the fullness of what it means to be a human made in the image of God in ways that we miss out on. So the challenge for us, and my hope this morning, is that as we unpack this a little bit more, we ourselves can begin, begin to experience this more full living that Jesus and his contemporaries know and that we miss. So let me show you two ways that we as modern people lament. And I'll contrast this with the way that we see lamenting happening in scripture. Um, two ways that we as modern people lament and it's actually not lamenting, it's uh, a way that we avoid um, actually really delving into lament. It's a way that we avoid really experiencing the deepest depths of grief. Uh, the first is what we'll call this morning naive optimism. Naive optimism. And I have a picture of what naive optimism looks like on the screen. Uh, I am, most of the time, naively optimistic. This is how I avoid feeling sadness. This is how I avoid lamenting. Um, to be naively optimistic means that for you, life is always up and to the right. Like things are generally getting better. Maybe, I couldn't, it's was, it was too hard to do graphically, maybe there are little dips along the way, but they're, they're so insignificant, not even worth putting them on on this picture because Things are getting better, things will be okay, things will work out, things always do, right? It's okay, it's not that big of a deal, let's just move on because the grass is greener where we're going, okay? This is, this is where I land, this is me. Can anybody relate? You don't have to raise your hand unless you want to. Um, here's, here's why I call it naive optimism, because it's naive, because it, it demonstrates uh, a real lack of awareness of reality. It shows a real, um, a real lack of wisdom and experience with life. And maybe you're naively optimistic and you're like you've lived a lot of life, but maybe you haven't really experienced or lived life to its fullest. Because it's, it's naively neglecting the realities that sometimes life is tragic and sometimes life is hard. It's breezing over those very important elements of, of being a human. Here is a, um, a telltale sign that this may be how you avoid lamenting. If you're someone who never cries or maybe you don't like to cry, Maybe if you find yourself moving towards tears and you're in public, you try to stifle them and press them down. I can't cry in front of people. That's a sign of weakness, right? And this is my story. I don't, I don't, I don't cry very often. And until a couple of years ago, I thought that that was a sign of real strength, a real gift in my life, like a sign of consistency, always up and to the right. And it wasn't until a year or two ago that I began to see like, hey, maybe there's something that I'm missing out on. And so I'm trying to embrace that and lean into that. A couple weeks ago, I was um, with my son Graham at a movie. Uh, we went to see Ferdinand at the Bartlett Theater, uh, you know, movies that had mo has moved on really cheap. Uh, 
a few days before that, I saw Black Panther in the IMAX, and that was quite a contrast, like the IMAX of the Paradiso and then to the Malco Bartlett. Um, and so we went to see Ferdinand. Has anybody seen it? Yeah, a few people. That's awesome. Um, parents, anybody with young kids? Uh, it's, it's not a great movie. Like, there are some animated films that are, would you agree, Ray? Yeah, there are some animated films that are worth worth your watching, like even if you don't have kids, uh, Pixar, we, we know lots of examples. This one, like if you're bored, pick it up, but you don't have to. Um, Ferdinand, it's the story about this uh, giant bull in Spain. And if you know much about Spain and bulls, you know that like it's not good to be a big bull in Spain. Uh, and so Ferdinand is just wrestling with like who he really is. And I'm in this movie theater uh, with my son and with all these other kids and parents. It's kind of chaotic and crazy. And uh, like I start to feel like tears come. And I'm like, you know what? Just bring it on. Come on. As I'm watching Ferdinand, like I'm trying to enter into this whole new world. And if you're naively optimistic, I ask you to join me. Come on. All right. Another way that we, uh, that we avoid lamenting as modern people is... Um, it's the exact opposite. I'll show you the picture, and I call it um, cynical despair. Doesn't that sound depressing? It sounds depressing to someone who might uh, avoid lamenting through naive optimism, like me. But if you lean into this, if you know what this is like, you're like, no, man, that's just that's just life. That's reality right there. Cynical despair, where things are things are just generally not getting better, right? Things never work out for me. Like, why should I have hope? Things work out for everyone else. Like I look around me and I see the ways things are working out for people in their jobs and in their families, but things just don't work out for me like that. And it's despairing because there's no hope. This week as I was preparing, I'm like, man, you know what? This is a bad idea. I'll just say this up front. I need to lean into cynical despair just so I can understand it a little more so I can feel it. <laughs> and so... Um, so I asked a friend of mine, uh, not because this describes him, but because he's, he's uh, uh, really in touch with, with movies and thinks critically about movies and TV shows, Adam, um, our director of student ministries. So I asked him, I'm like, hey man, uh, what can I watch? What can I experience to experience a little bit more of this? And uh, <laughs> he gave me a lot of suggestions. And then finally he's like, but you know what you really need to watch? And he's like, wait, maybe you don't need to watch it, but what you may need to consider watching is this show on Netflix, uh, this British anthology series called Black Mirror. Has anyone seen it? If so, you might identify with this chart right here. Um, if you haven't seen Black Mirror, seriously, don't go watch it. <laughs> like, I know, I know my saying that is just going to make you want to go watch it, like this reverse psychology, and I'm not trying to trick you. Like, I don't... In fact, I, I genuinely, I'm like, I don't know if I need to mention this in the sermon because I don't want people to watch it. Um, it is dark and depressing and despairing. There's no hope in Black Mirror. There's no purpose. There's no meaning to life. Things are spiraling out of control all the time, and there's no point in it all. But we love, like, part of me was so drawn to Black Mirror and the story because this is part of our day, cynical despair. This is part of who we are as 21st century people. 
This is how we live. This is how we avoid lamenting. It looks like lament, but it's actually a way to avoid. Let me show you, in contrast, uh, the way we see lamenting happen in the Bible. I'm going to read a psalm. Uh, Remember, over 100 psalms, so if you need to lean into, you want to discover what biblical lament looks like, like just spend some time reading the psalms. And don't try to gloss over the rawness and honesty, but let it just hit you. Uh, Because there are some things there that are raw and hard and difficult. Um, So let me read for you one of those psalms. This is Psalm 13. It's from King David. I'll read the whole thing. We'll have it on the screen. Um, So it's six verses. Just try to feel um, the arc of what David is experiencing in this poetry. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Where are you, God? How long will you leave me alone in my sorrow and my despair? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God, if you're not here, if you don't intervene, I will die. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Like it's almost jarring, right? There's such despair, there's such longing, there's such sadness, there's such loneliness. Where are you, God? But then it's almost jarring. But, but I will trust in your steadfast love because you have been good to me. Let me show you another example that I think is even more jarring. This is even more raw and honest. There's an entire book of the Bible uh, called Lamentations. Like if you want to write a bestseller in 2018, don't write a book and call it Lamentations. Like it's just not a good idea, but it's in the Bible. Like this is so core to the DNA of God's people uh, throughout scripture that there's a book called Lamentations. Let me just read for you a section of it from Lamentations chapter three. And Jeremiah, in this section, he's talking about God. Like it almost seems offensive the ways he's talking about God. Listen to what he says. This is poetry he's writing as he's lamenting and feeling deep sadness and anguish. Starting in verse 16, Lamentations 3. He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and my soul is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Again, it, it just it baffles our 21st century sensibilities. I can't understand it because in one verse, Jeremiah is saying, I'm without hope. I am in such despair. I'm so alone. It's like my teeth are grinding on gravel like that. Ah. But then just a couple of verses later, but I have hope because of the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Do you see it's so honest and raw that it jolts us and catches us off guard? And it almost seems dishonoring. But listen to this. Listen to this quote. I love this from um, a Bible scholar named Christopher Wright. He says, it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain in protest to God without fear of reproach. Lament is not only allowed in the Bible, it is modeled in abundance. God seems to want to give us as many words with which to fill out our complaint forms as to write our thank you notes. See, we think, man, you are far from God and you are dishonoring him with that honesty. But actually, maybe it's indicative of deeper levels of intimacy with God than we even know. Because we're so uncomfortable because we're so unwilling and because we so avoid genuine lament. So let me show you a picture of what biblical lament looks like. It's modeled most clearly, let's just leave it up there, it's modeled most clearly, actually, in the life of Jesus. And you see, it's, it's not naive optimism because David and the Psalms and Jeremiah and Jesus himself, they're not naive about life. Like they welcome life, they don't deny it, they see it for what it is and they name it. It's not naive. But it's also not despairing because even in the midst of having absolutely no hope some, somehow, and somehow I don't understand, there's also hope. There's simultaneously no hope, but there's also hope. So it's not ultimately despairing. And it's modeled in the life of Jesus. Let me read for you. Philippians chapter 2. Theologians call this the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, which sounds a lot like that picture looks, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He lowered himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He lowered and lowered and lowered himself all the way to the grave, even death on a cross. Humiliation, ultimate humiliation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humiliation and exaltation. I call the biblical pattern of lament death and resurrection. Because Jesus, Jesus plunged himself into the deepest depths that we could ever experience as humans by taking on death, even death on a cross, this um, brutal and shaming, shameful, embarrassing way to die in the first century world, to be killed, to be spat at, to be mocked. Jesus experienced the deepest depths of sorrow and despair and sadness. And so we can be honest when we feel like we are despairing as well because Jesus, we have a Savior who knows what that's like. He's been there, and he can be with you, and he can walk with you. And even when you feel like there's no hope, we know that there's ultimately hope because Jesus didn't stay dead, but he defeated life's greatest sorrow itself. He defeated death itself. And as we'll celebrate triumphantly in a few weeks on Easter, we celebrate every Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So ultimately, we always have hope. In our moments of deepest despair, in our most hopeless moments, there's hope. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, listen to this, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's not a sterile, lifeless, dead hope. It's a living hope that we have in Jesus. So we can lament, just like David and just like Jeremiah, And it's in lamenting that we'll experience deeper and deeper and deeper levels of intimacy with God. When you can be honest with where you really are, maybe that's where God will meet you because maybe that's journeying with Jesus to the cross. Let me give you one more practical part of lamenting. So verses 42, 43, and 44, as Jesus is weeping, something really important happens that we can't, We can't gloss over. Jesus cries out, and he he names his lament. He sees Jerusalem. He's filled with emotion. He weeps over the city, and then he names his lament. He gives voice to it. And this this happens time and time again throughout Scripture. Like we said, over a 100 of the Psalms are the people of God giving voice to their lament naming their lament, speaking it, writing it, saying it out loud. And you can imagine some of these psalmists saying it very loudly to God their Father. Jesus cries out in verses 42 through 44, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, Jesus is prophesying and looking forward to an event that would happen in AD 70 when the Romans would come in and conquer Jerusalem. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down all around you and your children within you. Jesus is lamenting over the city that he has such a heart for, the city that has ignored and killed the prophets time and time again, ignored their call from God to be a light to the nation, have lived insular, rejected Jesus, the true prophet of peace. It's ironic because Jerusalem means city of peace, and now they're rejecting the prince of peace, Jesus, and he's moved to anguish at the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And so what I want you to see there is he names his lament. So what does that mean for you? It means when you brush up against sadness in your life, maybe brush up against isn't the right way to say it, when sadness overcomes you in your life, because it will. When grief comes and it wrecks you, don't be naively optimistic, but be honest about what's going on and give voice to it, name it, Talk to God about it. You may not have ever heard a preacher tell you this before, but yell at God over what's going on inside of you. Give voice to what's going on. But then don't be cynically despairing either because there is hope. There is a purpose. Remember, remember the living hope that we have in Jesus and remember that you can somehow be hopeless and hopeful at the same time and that's okay and that Jesus can be there with you. So be okay with lament, Christ City Church. Be okay with crying because our Lord Jesus cried over and over and over. The psalmists, the prophets, they were always crying. Be okay with that. Maybe that's deeper levels of life than we currently know.